0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. I think this demonstrates the dangers uh, connected to the ongoing war in Ukraine, no signs of a direct attack, but NATO still blames Russia for the deaths of two Polish nationals. We'll speak to a former NATO ambassador about a deadly strike and its implications for the war in Ukraine. Also, everything we discuss
1: to the paper, that's not appropriate.
0: Admonishing the Prime Minister. The Chinese President takes issue with Justin Trudeau's decision to share details of an earlier conversation. And,
1: and we got him to stop taking advantage of our country.
0: He's running again, but have US Republicans moved on from Donald Trump? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Not the result of a deliberate attack. That is the conclusion from NATO, at least for now, following the deaths of two Polish nationals killed by a missile yesterday near the Ukrainian border. The official investigation is still ongoing, but the working theory is the deaths were caused by a Ukrainian air defense system. Here is the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg.
2: We have no indication that this incident was a result of a deliberate attack uh, on NATO territory. And we have no uh, uh, indications that Russia is uh, uh, planning uh, offensive military actions against uh, uh, NATO allies. Um, So uh, I think this demonstrates the dangers uh, connected to the ongoing war in Ukraine, but it hasn't changed our fundamental assessment of uh the threat against nato allies
0: still as you heard there russia not escaping blame entirely and to discuss the latest developments we're now reaching out to yves brader who served as canada's ambassador and permanent representative to nato from 2011 to 2015 ambassador thank you for joining us my pleasure i want to begin uh, with the secretary general and the comments that we just heard because it must come as some relief for nato members especially countries like poland who are concerned about an expanding war
1: yes indeed but uh, uh, what i would highlight i guess I'll underline is the fact that uh, despite the fit i'm not sure the word relief is the right word uh, i think the message here is that uh, everyone is uh, uh, monitoring very closely what's going on, NATO is. Uh, NATO also uh, is sending a message that it is actually uh, concerned by what's happening uh, but doesn't want to engage into a uh, a war uh, with Russia. That's if it's been clear. So uh, right now, I guess I would say that uh, there there uh, is a lot of intense consultations taking place at NATO right now. But NATO is certainly uh, watching closely what's going on there.
0: Mm -hmm. And as I said, uh, Russia not escaping blame at all. In fact, uh, the Secretary General says ultimately Russia is to blame uh, for what has happened. So talk to us about his rationale, because it it may give better understanding for people at home as to why, even though it's believed to have come from a Ukrainian defense system, Russia is still being looked at as as a country of blame.
1: Well, I think you have to go back to the beginning of all this in February uh, of this year. Uh, essentially, I, uh, the logic here is that uh, this unfortunate incident, and, and I, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for the families lost, you know, uh, uh, loved ones in, in Poland. But uh, essentially, uh, it's the results, the consequence of uh, the attack, legal attack of Russia on Ukraine. Uh, so the no matter what uh, the reason for this is or what the uh, how it happened it's it's apparently an incident uh, then uh, it happened before uh, there is this uh uh, this war ongoing between russia and ukraine and actually this aggression i should say uh, from russia and ukraine
0: Now, as you referenced, there are still intense discussions happening right now. The investigation is still ongoing to this incident. So how uh, might NATO respond going forward? What exactly are you watching out for in the days ahead?
1: Well, right now it's it's all internal to NATO. So what you will have uh, again under Article 4, a number of meetings. I suspect from based on my own experience that uh, allies are meeting uh, probably uh, every day right now. Uh, to discuss uh, information, intelligence that they may have received, uh, to uh, talk about the uh, how this is uh, evolving and uh, to uh, see if there are decisions that need to be made in terms of reinforcing our defense posture, allies' defense posture. Uh, so it's probably a very intense and active period at NATO right now involving military planners but also uh, uh, ambassadors to council. So I guess that you could probably uh, assume that the council is meeting uh, almost nonstop, at least uh, for, uh, since yesterday and, and probably for the next uh, few days.
0: Well, we continue to watch. Until then, Ambassador, thank you so much. appreciate your time today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: I a nice say. You too. The Chinese president admonished Prime Minister Trudeau today. It happened on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in Indonesia.
1: Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate.
0: To the right of your screen is Xi Jinping, and he accused the prime minister of harming diplomatic relations by sharing details of an earlier discussion with members of the press. The two did speak on Tuesday, and afterwards the PMO share Trudeau raised concerns about China's interference in Canada's political process and also talked about other issues like climate change, Russia, and North Korea. Xi is taking issue with Trudeau's openness. Here is what the prime minister had to say about that. Part of our values as Canadians is being open and frank about the conversations we have, keeping Canadians involved uh, and apprised of what it is that we're doing and the conversations we're having here, and that's exactly what I did. Well, to talk about this, we're now joined once again by Guy Saint Jacques, who served as Canada's ambassador to China from 2012 to 2016. Ambassador, nice to see you again.
2: Thank you for the invitation.
0: So she is obviously not happy uh, with the sharing that Trudeau's office engaged in with the press. How problematic is that for any future talks between our two countries?
2: Well, it, it shows uh, uh, the, the challenges that Canada will be faced, even to have a restricted engagement strategy with China. As you have seen in uh, the video, uh, Xi Jinping was very agitated. Uh, I've never seen him uh, 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 using, raising his arms like this, almost like if he wanted to uh, tackle uh, the prime minister. And, and it, uh, again, it's something uh, very unusual. And in the Chinese context also, you, when you deal with someone, you have to make sure that this person does not lose face. Well, this, in my view, was intended uh, to make the prime minister lose face. Also, probably uh, uh, Xi Jinping must be angry because uh, uh, the prime minister did not uh, wait for, uh, to get the, the, the full translation uh, of what uh, she had said. I think probably the prime minister was afraid that uh, she would turn around and disappear. Uh, and uh, what we would be required is to have a full transcript of exactly what uh, uh, Xi Jinping uh, said, because I have seen a, a tweet where uh, it says, for instance, and this was not translated. Uh, otherwise, it is hard to say what will happen. Uh, and I see this as a veiled threat towards um, uh, Canada, towards the Prime Minister. Uh, all this to say that the, the chemistry between uh, the two leaders is. Uh, is not very good, to say the least.
0: Not very good. But I'm wondering how much that matters, though, given what we know of China's involvement in Canada, the allegations of running these police stations to coerce Chinese Canadians here, the, the allegations that they tried to interfere in the 2019 election. Does it matter that the Chinese president is insulted by Trudeau speaking out?
2: Well, uh, I would say good for the prime minister to have uh, uh, pushback on uh, Xi Jinping to say, look, we have different systems. Uh, ours is a lot more open and transparent than yours. Uh, and in a way, uh, you know, the, there, is, there has been a, a major shift in Ottawa uh, towards uh, relations with China. We, we have to deal with the, 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 a China that has become a lot more authoritarian, difficult. Uh, aggressive, a country that does not uh, respect uh, international law, that takes uh, people as a hostage, that punish very severely a country uh, through uh, tariffs or a ban on, on products. When you, and also a country that uh, has uh, no regard for human rights, as we can see in uh, Tibet and Xinjiang and the democracy that has disappeared in, in Hong Kong. So I think we, we have to push back. I think at this stage, you know, we will uh, see in the next few weeks uh, uh, more precisely what is the uh, new Indo-Pacific strategy uh, that will be unveiled by the government. Uh, in the meantime, if I were uh, Minister Jolie, I would try to uh, corner my uh, counterpart, Wang Yi, uh, at the next uh, meeting in uh, Thailand of the, uh, at the APEC summit to to try to agree on a process, uh, a way forward to say, look, you know, if you are honest, look at all the assistance that Canada has provided to you in the past. We helped to create your uh, Ministry of the uh, Environment. We uh, helped you to create your dairy industry and and so on. Uh, Look at all the people-to-people exchanges. We have to sit down and try to map out where we can work together. But even that, I think, will be very difficult.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, as Canada tries to deal with this, as you say, difficulty, it was interesting to to see that Joe Biden, the U.S. president, did meet with Xi in Bali. He had far more formal meetings. And he says that the U.S. and China can work together. Does that guide or limit in any way how Canada can move forward with the People's Republic?
2: Well, uh, in fact, uh, we we have to understand that uh, uh, China needs the U.S. a lot more than it needs uh, Canada. This being said, I think that in terms of trade, trade will continue. We we will continue to export uh, commodities, uh, uh, iron, copper, uh, coal, uh, a lot of uh, agri-food products. But I think in terms of uh, political relations, it will be difficult. In the case of the U.S., uh, the, the economy are uh, very integrated uh, in terms of the supply chains. Uh, China needs technology uh, from the U.S. They need the, the, the American market, and so uh, it's a superpower. And uh, China is not in a position right now to challenge uh, the United States, so uh, they, they have to compromise. And the reason why Xi Jinping agreed to meet with uh, President Biden is that he knows that he has lots of problems to deal with. The, the Chinese economy is not doing well. There is uh, more COVID cases every day. So he has to limit the number of problems that he has to tackle. And he knew that he had to uh, resume uh, somewhat uh, the, uh, the relationship. It, it's not the case uh, with Canada. In the case of Canada, we, we have, I don't think we have anything that uh, China needs uh, desperately uh, from us.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we continue to watch the situation. Ambassador, always good to speak with you. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. To the Public Order Emergency Commission now, where today government lawyers entered into evidence threats that were made on the life of the Prime Minister and to bring bullets into Canada. These threats contained in emails came to light as the former president of the Canada Border Services Agency was being questioned. Take a listen.
3: The first email, which was on February 7th, says, we would like to come to Ottawa to support the protest. And if you want a war on your people, we are prepared to die to stop you. No border of yours will hold us back. Liberty or death, you choose. Um, I take it this is being reported by the BOC, because that's a matter of concern for CBSA? Yes. And the second one, which is sent on February 12th, says in the event there is no solution and the Canadian government continues its destructive path, we are prepping to come to Canada to support the people's fight against Canadian government tyranny. We will donate a gallows to the people of Canada to assemble for Justin's hanging. Again, that was a matter of concern for the CBSA.
4: Yes, it was.
5: People were asking for information, particularly on armor-piercing Teflon-coated bullets. And what it would take to import those into Canada.
3: That's not something you see very often at the CBSA, I assume. No.
0: The inquiry is trying to determine if the legal threshold was met for the Emergencies Act to be invoked. We'll continue to track the latest for you right here on CPAC. Canada's inflation rate held steady for the month of October, holding at 6.9%. Now, while that stubbornly high number may be concerning, the finance minister is taking some positive out of it. Take a listen.
1: We absolutely understand that it's really important for our government not to make the Bank of Canada's job harder. Uh, In terms of the data that came out this morning, We now have seen that for four months in a row, inflation in Canada has either been stable or declining. And that's progress.
0: Well, a positive sign or not, the fact that inflation is still well above the Bank of Canada's target range is expected to lead to another interest rate hike in December. To talk about that, we're now joined by Kaylee Teeson. She is an economist for Unifor, which is this country's largest private sector union. Ms. Teeson, thank you for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So as you, you heard, the, the finance minister is giving a positive spin on the number. What's your take on it?
4: Well, I think we saw what well, we did see that the inflation rate held steady this year and or this month. And just as the finance minister said, we had seen three months of decline before that. That's a really positive sign, particularly given that inflation is the number one concern that we're hearing from from all sorts of people across the economy right now. It's a really good sign, but we need to be doing more to fight inflation. Um, we've seen the Bank of Canada do, Canada do quite a bit. They've used the only tool that they have, but there are so many other tools that we could be using uh, we'd love to see more of those uh, coming from the government
0: well let's talk about that in a second because okay. you know you mentioned the Bank of Canada and the expectation is as I said in December we're looking at another rate hike when you hear that what's your concern
4: I think what we need to do is take a pause so we've seen four months now where the inflation rate has held steady or declined we also know that more interest rate hikes could be causing a recession a recession hurts workers when, in fact, inflation is not being caused by workers. Inflation is being caused by profiteering, by supply chain issues. Um, So putting all of the pain on workers doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, we should be doing something quite different. So I'd like to see the Bank of Canada take a pause, take a breath, take in a few months more of data, and then make another decision. And
0: let's be clear, let's just connect the dots here. You say it creates pain for workers. In what way does it create pain for workers? That might be an obvious question, but I think it's worthwhile to to share.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So if we're trying to slow economic growth, we're trying to slow demand, that's what the interest rate hike does. It makes things more expensive and slows demand. That slows job creation and could create a recession. And a recession, by definition, will put people out of work. So the people who right now are struggling the most because of inflation will actually be, will lose their jobs or will not get a job. uh, And that creates a different kind of pain uh, or pain from a different uh, sort of hammer that uh, means that people still can't buy food, they still can't pay their rent, those things. So it's not the solution that we're looking for.
0: Mm -hmm. Not the solution you're looking for. So what solution are you looking for? Because I I think part of the the issue here is, uh, for example, when the federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh criticized the Bank of Canada, he took a lot of criticism himself for essentially uh, risking political interference in an independent body. Is there not a risk of interfering with the Bank of Canada's mandate by by making these types of demands?
4: So the Bank of Canada has a mandate to focus on the interest rate, but also needs to consider employment. That's something that added into the mandate about a year and a half ago, uh, that they also need to be considering the effect of interest rates on on jobs. So it's not just about the inflation rate, but also about the the employment rate. Uh, And they need to be considering that as they're making these decisions. Increasing the interest rate again will likely tip us over into a recession that then will move us into higher unemployment.
0: So if they take a pause, what then can help? How do you tackle inflation if not raising an interest rate from the Bank of Canada?
4: So one of the things that is causing inflation is profiteering in a few industries, particularly oil and gas. We could talk about grocery stores. And addressing that through excess that's profit That's not yet been text. proven, though.
0: I know, that's, I know that's been put out there, and I know they're, they're posting high profits, but profiteering is a specific
4: So uh, in the second quarter of 2022, we saw that profits as a share of GDP was up to 25%. So 25% of the GDP created in the country was taken by profit. Before the pandemic, the average for the five years before the pandemic, that was at 15%. That was already an all-time high. And now we're seeing it shoot up dramatically. So I think we can say that profits are increasing prices and then siphoning some of the money out of the economy. We'd love to see workers taking a higher share of the GDP that's created.
0: How does that help them, though? How does that bring down inflation?
4: So two things could happen if we, for example, in, um, introduced or expanded the excess profits tax. We could either use that money to pay for things that are expensive, like pharmacare, dental care. Um, we've seen the implementation of affordable childcare, which brings down costs for families who need childcare dramatically. We're seeing the results of that across the country. Same thing could happen with PharmaCare and dental care. Uh, And the other thing that could happen is firms could actually change their behavior and lower their profit margins uh, and then lower prices in order for people to to be able to afford things again.
0: And that is, of course, as I say, you're with Unifor. That's something that your organization has been uh, lobbying federal politicians this past week about. Uh, From what you've seen, what's been the reception to your message?
4: Uh, we've heard that excess profit tax and expanding that ex- excess profit tax I think is something that um, is worth considering and we're hearing, uh, we're seeing that people are very receptive to that message as one additional tool in the toolbox to fighting inflation.
0: Kaylee, thank you for that, really appreciate it.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Donald Trump is back, announcing last night in Florida that he'll be running for the Republican nomination in hopes of being U.S. president in 2024. In fact, he even cited Canada in his speech last night. Take a listen.
1: Every nation took advantage of our country. We renegotiated deals with Mexico and Canada, USMCA. We got rid of the worst trade deal ever made, ever made, NAFTA, the worst trade deal ever made. That's why the farmers love Trump, because we did a great job.
0: Well, to talk about Trump's announcement, we're now joined by David Leventhal in Washington, Deputy Editor for The Insider. Dave, nice to see you. Hey, good to see you, Michael. Listen, uh, talk to us about this announcement. So much to really talk about, but given how harshly Donald Trump has been criticized in the wake of the U.S. midterm elections, I'm wondering about the reaction. What has it been to, to his announcing that he will be running again?
5: first of all michael the announcement itself was about as surprising as the sun rising this morning we knew donald trump was going to run for president he had been telegraphing it pretty much since he left the white house in january of 2021 and when he finally did announce and and he made his big announcement uh, as he's been previewing for so long it was really kind of just playing the hits he talked a lot about the past He pointed backwards in his comments very often. And and the reaction to it has sort of been muted, even among many Republicans who would identify themselves as tried-and-true Trump supporters or supporters of Trumpism, but were relatively nonplussed.
0: Well, I'm wondering why that is, because, you know, even the New York Post, famously pro-Trump before uh, 2020, reported on the announcement by saying, uh, quote, a Florida retiree has decided to run for U.S. president. How seriously is Donald Trump being taken within Republican circles right now?
5: Republicans have a majorly bad taste in their mouth right now because of the results of the midterm elections here in the United States. Had there been a a huge win, had uh, Republicans won both the U.S. House, which they have won, but also the U.S. Senate and overperformed in terms of their expectations for themselves, we might be having a different conversation right now. But Donald Trump, let's remember, he did not really deliver in 2018 in midterm congressional elections. He obviously lost the 2020 election himself, and here in 2022 as the leader of the Republican Party, it underperformed. It really did not reach the expectations that the party had set for itself. So there had been some calls from some Republicans who are being a little bit more outspoken than they have been in the past, saying maybe we got to look elsewhere. Maybe we got to look for a younger generation, somebody who, yeah, is saying all the same kinds of things of Donald Trump, but is not actually named Donald J. Trump.
0: Well, when you say that, of course, uh, the Florida governor is very much on the lips of many Republicans right now
5: without question. So Ron DeSantis, that Florida governor, very much at the top of the list of many Republicans as somebody who could potentially challenge Donald Trump in a Republican primary, which mind you, we're talking more than a year away before anyone is gonna cast any meaningful vote in the race to become Republican nominee for president in 2024. But he's not the only one. There are other Republicans too. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former vice president, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the U.N., Tim Scott, a senator from South Carolina. The list goes on and on. And all of them have been making noises to one extent or another about the possibility that they, too, will jump into this race. So really, Michael, the big question right now is not uh, is anyone going to challenge Donald Trump, but who is going to challenge Donald Trump and how many will?
0: Well, you know, the political story aside, I'm also wondering about judicial challenges, Dave, because Donald Trump he does continue to be the subject of a number of criminal investigations. So, what impact will his run have on those? How much do those investigations have to do with his decision to run?
5: Well, we're, we're really getting into unprecedented territory here, and and struggling for any type of historical analog or parallel to point to because Donald Trump just simply is unlike any other presidential candidate before. We only have, first of all, one president in U.S. history, Grover Cleveland, who ever ran for president, won, then lost, then served a non-consecutive second term. That's what Donald Trump is trying to do and make history in that regard. But the legal cloud that looms over him is massive, and it's multi-pronged. There are cases, be them civil cases or criminal investigations, that are active, that are pending, and and that could really loom over Donald Trump, not only for the next year or two, but the rest of his life. So we're looking at a situation where if Donald Trump was to win the nomination, there are all sorts of sundry scenarios about, could Donald Trump serve well under indictment? Could he run as a presidential candidate while facing prison terms? I mean, these are really the conversations that some Republicans especially are gnashing their teeth and wringing their hands over wondering well you know do we really need this kind of drama and how could anyone like that win in a general election even against a democrat who people aren't about it's not exactly uh you know the rosiest scenario here
0: dave always good to speak with you on this thank you for that absolutely thank you michael and that's david leventhal deputy editor of the insider and that is our program for this evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.